review what we've looked at so far. What is the trivium? Anybody remember what the trivium is? It's education. It's the three phases of education. Three phases. Very good. Okay, or grammar, logic, rhetoric. Same, same idea. Um, and then the... Anybody remember the quadrivium, which follows on the trivium? Um, was it, were those four studies? Like yes. They were like geometry. Arithmetic, geometry. geometry um, music. Stars was, was the astronomy, astronomy, that's right. And the seven making what they called a classical liberal education. Liberal not meaning leftist Marxist, but meaning free. It enables you to be free because you can actually think... And then after that, after you had the classical liberal education, then they would have specialized skills, which they would call practical skills, law, medicine, and theology, things like that. So in the, in the world before the modern corruption of education, your theologians, your medical doctors, and your jurists would all have the basic foundational education exactly the same then they would specialize in one area or another, and it made for a more comprehensive understanding of reality. How does my discipline relate to his discipline? What's the relationship between jurisprudence and medicine, and between medicine and theology, and theology and the both? Well, they all had a common foundation. So this was the idea of the trivium. And then we looked at how the idea of trivium is related to the Bible itself. We looked at how grace perfects nature, that God made man in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and how God in the gospel renews the image of God. We saw that in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Uh, the apostle dealing with the Ten Commandments, the image of God, and how the gospel enables us to all holy obedience. It's not an abrogation of the light of nature. And then the fear of the Lord, Solomon tells us, is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Again, man has a natural capacity to understand and to know, and the gospel restores that to man. It doesn't abolish it. It doesn't make us into irrational, brute, unthinking beasts, which is what impression you might get from many pastors where they appeal to people's emotions, they appeal to people's wills, but you rarely find them appeal to the mind. Whereas when you read the Bible, you find that the emotions and the will and the mind are all appealed to. But because man is created in the image of God, the first point of appeal is always the mind, the second is the will, and the third is the affections. All right. Nature itself includes the skill of thinking. So if we're saying that grace perfects nature rather than grace abolishes or diminishes nature, that means that the grace of the gospel is going to perfect the skill of thinking. It's not going to remove it, it's going to perfect it. And so Paul in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So the gospel restores us in knowledge. We also saw John 1 and 2 Peter 2, where Peter in particular, when he's talking about false teachers, those who would mislead the flock, he says that they are as natural brute beasts. And the word there for brute is a-logos, those who lack in logos or the capacity to think or to reason. 
We also saw that human nature roughly develops in parallel with the trivium structure, meaning when a child comes into the world, they tend to function mentally on what is known as the grammar stage. Lots of facts, lots of memorization, not necessarily thinking about the logic of those facts or how do they fit together or the why, but more of the facts themselves laid out. Then as the mind develops, the child moves into more of the questioning, how does this work? Why is it this way? What is the rational basis on which these facts are presented? The rhetoric stage, after the facts have been learned, the logic has been understood, then is the expression of persuasion or information, speaking, writing, communicating. We also looked at how the Bible itself, my contention is, it roughly falls within that same structure. You have the basic facts in the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. That would be the grammar phase of the Bible. Who is God? What is man? How did God make man? What happened after man was created? What did God do after man fell? All those basic topics are covered in those early books. And we looked through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in particular. Then my contention is that the Bible moves into the logic phase. So you have the law of Moses, and then you have the prophets. And you see this actually when our Lord talks about the Old Testament. He talks about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Or the Hebrews divide the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Psalms being the first book in the writings. Jesus is talking about that threefold division of the Old Testament in Luke 24. But in the prophets, you find not necessarily a bare repetition of what Moses says in the facts or the grammar phase, but you find the internal logic of the law itself. If you have a moral law, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, or one of the Ten Commandments. And then you find a ceremony that says you should offer this sacrifice at this time in this place. The prophets are very clear. God has no interest in you obeying the ceremonies if you don't obey the moral law. So Jeremiah uses the language of, well, when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, I said nothing about burnt offering and sacrifice. I told you to obey my voice, God says through Jeremiah. Meaning, if you're going to offer all the sacrifices and burn the incense and come on the Sabbath and the new moons, and then you murder and you steal from your brother, that's not actually fearing me. That's just doing your own will. Isaiah talks about that as well, where God says that their Sabbaths were an abomination to him, that he hated it when they observed the Sabbath because they were wicked and ungodly, but they observed the Sabbath. And so God says, no, you must do both. You must both observe the ceremonies and the moral law. And they're not meant to be competing with each other. They're meant to run on parallel tracks. And so this is the logic phase, I would argue. And then in... The New Testament, I contend that that is more of the rhetoric stage. It's when the facts have been learned, the logic has been grasped, and now it's a presentation. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Well, that is a, a rhetoric phase. That's the presentation and persuasion of the gospel. Matthew 28, we looked at. Also, we looked at Acts 19, where the apostle goes in and persuades from the scriptures. He reasons from the scriptures. 
He takes what the scripture says and makes logical deductions and conclusions and makes application to his hearers. We saw also in Galatians 4, this is what we concluded with last time, uh, Galatians 4 gives us the analogy of the grammar phase. When he talks about the Old Testament, he talks about it under the rubric of a child who is an heir, but he hasn't entered into his majority. As long as the heir is a child, he differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So a little child in the days of Moses, in other words, were they the heirs of God? Well, of course they were. God promised to Abraham that he would be his God. And who else is God? The God of his children after him. So of course they were the heirs of God. Were they treated as adults? No, they were not. They were given stick figure representations. They were given ceremonies and rites shadows and types of Christ we have the substance Christ crucified they had the lambs and the goats and the bullocks and the sprinkling of the ashes and things like that we have a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek they had the sons of Aaron one would die passed it on to the next one they had an earthly tabernacle we have a heavenly tabernacle so they had everything that we have for the substance of it but God presented it to them not in the manner that we have it, in the bare facts of the gospel, but under shadows and types. But the important thing there is that the way he presents the gospel is, it's like a child who comes of age. It's not that he forgets what his parents taught him when he was young. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you would never get the impression that they had no use for the Old Testament. You would get the opposite. Everything they say is backed up, supported by, and a logical conclusion from what the Old Testament says. So this is the idea of the phase of rhetoric. Now coming into adulthood, now recognizing the full rights and privileges we have in Christ. All right, so that having been prefaced in review, now the educational advantages of a biblical philosophy of education are the trivium. One is that... When we teach in accordance with the trivium, we're teaching both in accordance with the nature that God created and with the grace of the gospel. The trivium recognizes that God created man a specific way. The Bible actually follows that very pattern of how the mind develops from the grammar to the logic to the rhetoric phase. The Bible itself is a trivium following that same line of development. So as a school or a household or even a church teaches in accordance with this model, you're going to find that it's perfectly in accordance with how God created the world. We're not perfect in the way we do it, but the method itself is God's method. And the grace of the gospel supports and encourages those things. Uh, in the what's known as the, the Puritan preaching, if you've ever read the Puritans and how they preached, they use the trivia model for their preaching. So you would have coal miners and merchants. You might have magistrates and you might have poor men. But if you ever get a chance to read the early sermons in America, it's all Puritan preaching. It's an exposition of the text. It's an explanation of what it says. Then it's a logical deduction from what has been stated from Scripture. And then it's an application of that to the conscience and to the will. That's how the preaching always worked for the Puritans. When you came to the Second Great Awakening, and even somewhat in the First Great Awakening, it shifted away from that. The appeal stopped being so much to the mind 
and became almost exclusively to the will. And by the time you get to the second great awakening, it's almost exclusively to what? Anybody know? Charles Finney? Emotions. It's exactly right. And politics in America follows the revivalistic strand. They always use a lot of stupid words that don't mean anything, but get people whooped up into a frenzy, right? Well, that's what, that's what big tent revivalism is all about. You get people whipped up into a frenzy, and then pretty soon they're singing, I just want to, 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 and they don't know what they're talking about. Because you're appealing to what? The emotional experience. The drama of the thing. The noise. And guess who else does that? The Church of Rome does that. But they have smells, and they have pictures, and they have noises, and they have this amazing thing going on. And the whole point is, it's appealing to man's animalistic nature. Whereas the, what founded America was that Puritan model of preaching where the common man could think about the great issues of eternity and learn about those things when he went to church. Imagine that. You got your best education on Sunday in the colonial times because you might be working out in the coal mine all week, but when you get to church on the Lord's Day, man, you get fed. You get taught. And because their ministers and their magistrates and their people were all trained with this model, it wasn't like it was super hard and out of everybody's grasp. Whereas with the public school model, what has happened is everybody's become brain dead. We don't even know how to think anymore. And it's intentional so that the populace can be moved by their emotions. You see, Black Lives Matter. What was that all about? Do, are there people who are really sitting around saying, you know, black people don't matter? I mean, there might be a handful of people who actually believe that. What about the rest of us? Well, the rest of us think, okay, they're created in the image of God. Yeah, They might be criminals more than other people, and so they should be punished more than other people. But that's the use of reason. What do they want you to do? Well, just feel for them. Feel sorry for them. Bow before them, right? Just move by your emotions. So they got a whole generation trained out of using their, na their natural reason, and trained against the grace of the gospel, which should perfect the natural reason, not abolish it. So when we teach in accordance with this model, it's in accordance with the model of scripture itself, it's in accordance with the nature of man as created in God's image, and it's also a time-tested method with proven success. Time-tested, it's been around since the days of the Greeks, we saw. It was used in America until the 19th century, so from our founding until the 19th century, the most literate and intelligent generations of Americans, then we started dumbing everything down and we got generations of mind, mindless Americans. And there are exceptions, praise God. But by and large, look around you, what do you see? People who think, people who understand, or people who look at their phone and their phone says, you should think this. And they say, yeah, I should think that because everybody else thinks that. Well, where'd they get it? from their phone. Oh, well, should I question that? Is that reason? No, don't question it. Don't think. Just feel. Don't you hear the music? Can't you see the, see the uh, lights? Don't you hear the rock music? You know, just get into it. So it's all irrational. So time-tested, proven success. How did the Renaissance man learn what he did? How did Shakespeare learn what he did? How did our founding fathers understand what they understood? This method has been proven over time to be successful. Low budget and high output. Doesn't cost much to teach according to the trivia method. It really doesn't. What do you need? 
No Webster's Speller, the Bible, the Catechism, a Psalter. That's pretty much all you need. Then once you get that down, what else do you need? Primary source documents. That's it. You don't need expensive programs. You don't need even really to have a team of teachers because the goal of the trivia model is to teach a person to teach themselves so that they can learn how to learn so that you don't create a dependency of pabulum being fed to a baby. You create independency where they can feed themselves. That's the goal. All right, so low budget, high output, high literacy. The most literate generations that we've ever had, the most well-read, largest vocabulary, largest reading comprehension, trained under this model. Historical knowledge. We are rootless as a society. We don't realize, yeah, this has already been tried. A couple decades ago, they tried the same thing you're doing. Did it work out? No. Did it kill lots of people? Yes. Did it ruin civilization? Yes. Okay, so why are we trying this? Because we don't understand history. We think utopia is coming. Well, utopia never came. And they kept on promising the same thing. In fact, you can even test some doctrines by this. In my great-grandparents' day, they said, run for the hills because Christ is returning any moment. Well, did he? No. And then they said it 10 years later. And then they said it 10 years later. And then they said it 10 years later. And guess who does that? The global warming crowd. It's basically revivalism. Oh, 10 years. Oh, now another 10 years. Oh, oh, wait. 10 more years. Just give us 10 more years. Well, I'm going to stop listening to you at a certain point. Because I have historical knowledge that you lied to me so many times before. And all this utopian garbage never works. So why should I listen to you? You know, historical knowledge. Well-trained ministers, well-trained elders, sound preaching and teaching in the church. If ministers are trained with this model from their youth, they actually learn how to do research. They learn how to understand what the text says. Then they learn why they should understand what the text says. How to make conclusions from what the text says that are sound and reasonable and how to eloquently persuade and present those truths. And the people themselves, the congregants, the citizens, the people who will day-to-day make the decisions that will change the world, if they can understand how to read books, how to teach themselves, how to analyze an argument, how to detect fallacies, that's going to go really far. You're talking, Peggy, about all the troubles we have in politics, and you're absolutely right. But you know what we're doing We're constantly feeding our kids to the beast. Every generation, we have new fodder for this massive system called the government education system. And that government education system hates those kids, is destroying those kids. Are there people who, you know, individuals who care within the system? Yes. Doesn't matter. The system hates the kids. The system destroys their minds. The system subdues their wills. And the system makes them totally focused on how they feel so that they cannot detect reality from falsehood. And that's the, that's the goal. So if we had a Christian-based system of education that followed the nature that God made us in and follows the grace that perfects the nature that God made us in, we could change the world. But we keep on sending our kids to these retards who don't know a, a thing that they're talking about and who want to corrupt our children. Well, what do we expect? What's the result we're going to get? Our Republicans are communists. That's a fact. The Republican Party platform and what they believe in, what they support is communism. But do they study history? Do they realize that Abraham Lincoln was a communist and wrote to Karl Marx and was a pal with him? 
Do they know that all their generals who attacked the South were communists kicked out of Europe? No, they don't know that. So we just love Abraham Lincoln and support the troops and back the blue. Okay, well, wait a second. Do police have lawful authority? Income no. tax. He started income tax. Yeah, he started the income tax. That's exactly right. Do police have lawful authority? No, they don't, actually. You know how I know that? Because in the Bible, whenever someone gets authority, how do they get it? They get voted in, right? David is anointed by Samuel. Did that make him king? When did David become king in Judah? Ten so, years later? Yeah, it's like 13, 15 years later. Because he got voted on by the elders of Judah who said, we want you to be our king. Okay, so in order for David, anointed by Samuel the prophet, called by God to be king, in order for him to have lawful authority, he has to have the consent of the people he's going to govern. Who of, who of us elected the police? Who elected the zoning board? Did you ever vote for your zoning board? Did you ever vote for Bridgewater who tells you what to do with your business? Do you ever vote for any of the people who make the decisions? Maybe, like mayor. Maybe you voted for mayor. But who else? All that, that pestiferous bureaucracy that ruins people's lives. Who voted for them? Who voted for the IRS? Nobody. Back the blue. Well, who voted for them? Are they lawful? Are they the legitimate? No, they're communist. That's what it is. Police is communism. Bureaucracy, communism. Income tax, communism. Land confiscation, communism. And what do we support? You know? So even our best, and I'm not meaning to be harsh with Republicans, they're the best deal we got going, right? Who else are we going to vote for, the Democrats? No. But the point is that we are so misinformed. We do not have the historical knowledge. We do not have the ability to reason. Our pastors are, are just little playthings who get up there and crack jokes keep people entertained, blah, 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 blah. They never say anything of substance. They never give any, anything to think about. They never challenge people to repent of their sins. They never call anyone to really change things. Yeah, you know, go to the altar. What's that? You know, is there an altar in the New Testament? There's lots of altars in churches. Is there an altar in the New Testament? Yeah, it's in heaven where Jesus sprinkled his blood after he died on the earth. Where are the rest of the altars? At the temple in Jerusalem. Are there any altars in the churches? The early church fathers, they're very clear to the Jews and to the heathens. We have no images. We have no altars. You guys have those? We don't. It's not a, not a thing Christians do. But if we had this system of education, if we had this faith that our fathers had, we could grow in our knowledge of the, histor the history of our people, of our nation, of where we can then go in the future. If you don't know where, the, where you've been, you don't know where you're going. You are rootless. You're easy pickings. Knowledgeable statesmen. Ability to de detect fallies, fallacies in argument. Emotional appeals and propaganda. Deeper discipleship. All these are advantages of such a method of education. All right, so we'll conclude with that. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at some of the resources available for teaching or for learning both for adults or for children. Any questions, though, about the advantages or even the review portion of our study this evening? Did you have A's? And I think we went straight from, my went from advantages right into resources. 
Is there another page name? No, 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 no. That, it does go right from one to the other. Oh, it does, because you gave us a lot of notes. It was supposed to go right in this area. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, that's my fault. No, well, I just didn't know if you had an additional outline. No, I probably should have, because I went on for a long while on that. You had a lot of good points, like, you know, just kind of like the, the breakdown of how we went from you know, being, like, it was a breakdown. We didn't go straight from the rhetoric to the grammar, but we went from rhetoric, and then we went just to logic teaching, and then we went to, you know, the emotional. This was all review. Everything in the first two sections of this, I was just reviewing things we've looked right. at before. Right, yeah. So I apologize if I'm going no, real no, no, fast. I, I, or I meant the, the, the client, I guess you said, like, the, the mind, the will, and then the emotions, like, you know, the, the, the parallel. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really, really interesting. It's kind of a, a, a lost... Um, the natural function of the human personality is a lost art. People haven't thought about it for a while. People just assume that the way that we think about it now is the way people have always thought about it. But one of the most interesting studies you could ever do is to take a concordance of the Hebrew or the Greek and look up the word heart and find out what actions the heart does. Because in our day, we think of the heart as kind of um, romantic, like it's your feeling, or your emotion, or your love. And the Bible does use it in that way, but it doesn't use love in the way that we use the word love. Because the heart in the Bible thinks. That's the primary function of the heart. It's the reasoning capacity of man. The secondary function of the heart is to make choices. And the third function of the heart is to feel things or to have affections. But in our paradigm, we have it exactly, well, we really just have the affections is the heart, period, full stop. But the heart, cardia in the Greek or lev in the Hebrew, I think, those two words, if you look at what the usage that is made, the heart thinks and the heart chooses, usually moral choices, either good or bad. So the way that the Bible uses heart, and this is actually true of all ancient civilizations, they understood nature a little better than we do. So the Egyptians, the, uh, what are some of the other cultures, the Babylonians, their usage of the term or idea of heart is the same. It has to do with the rational faculty. Whereas we tend to think of it in a different way, and that is because we think of human nature as basically our feelings. Yeah, we do. We don't think of it in objective terms of things that actually exist. We think of it in subjective terms, and that has to do with the influence of the Romantics right. and Hegel and all that kind of garbage. But if we changed our way of thinking, if we thought more biblically about things, and we thought about, well, how does God address us? Is the point of the Bible to tell us things about how we feel? No. It's not, actually. It's to tell us things that are real and true. That's the main point of the Bible. And how you feel about it might indicate whether you're on the right side or the wrong side, but that's not the point. Do you agree with this? Do you assent to it? Will you submit to it? Will you come under its dominion and authority, this truth that God has revealed? Or will you rebel and turn your back on it? So the, the mind and the will are basically the categories in which the Bible addresses us. The Bible doesn't think of emotion, actually, as we think of it. Passion is the word that the Bible uses. 
And it's always used in a in either something you suffer that people inflict on you or it's used of some evil thing because you're ruled by external forces. We say follow your passion, follow your heart. We're basically telling people go to hell. You know, follow your wicked self, do all your evil deeds, don't listen to God, do what your little inner voice tells you, do what thou wilt, as the Satanists say. Whereas the Bible is very clear, deny yourself, say no to what you want, take up your cross and follow Christ. That's the answer. The other thing is just deceit. But again, that's what the public education system taught me, follow your heart, believe in yourself, have high self-esteem. That's what the Bible, the Bible militates against. And they're teaching me that when I was growing up in the public school system. But I think if we have that notion, mind, will, affections, and then we realize that's been flipped upside down Absolutely. so that it's the, the affections or even the body as supreme, the affections following the body, the will following the affections, and the mind, where's that? Who knows? But it's supposed to follow all this other stuff, and that's really how they have got us because we don't even know that they're teaching us a totally false paradigm about reality. But they are. All right. I went way longer than I had hoped to. If you have any more questions, we'll... Uh